previously on Chemistry in Everyday Life. Did forensics already get back to you on the sample that they found at the crime scene? Yeah, material found at the crime scene was latex. They also found residues of gunpowder and fluxetine, an antidepressant sold under the brand name Prozac. Did you guys ever wonder how they know these things? And now, the conclusion. What you just heard was the question we began to answer in the last episode. How on earth do people know things like if something is latex or some other fabric? How do we know the level of toxins in the earth or water? How do we know if someone had drugs in his system at a certain point? We looked at purification techniques first in the last episode. They may or may not be necessary in analyzing a sample. So today, let's have a look at the analytical techniques that can be used. My name is Johannes Vogel and you're listening to Chemistry in Everyday Life, my podcast where I explain the chemistry that happens all around us, explained in layman's terms. Chemistry is the study of the attributes and changes that substances can undergo, no matter if they're gases, liquids or solids. And believe me when I tell you that this happens everywhere around us at this very moment. So I can think of three things you may want to find out with analytical chemistry. Maybe there are more. At this moment, though, I can only think of three. Number one, when you look for something specific in a sample, for example, whether an athlete has taken any anabolic steroids to enhance his or her performance, a so-called qualitative analysis. Secondly, taking the same sample if a certain amount of something is okay, then the question is how much of a substance is found. That is called a quantitative analysis. If you look at a more specific subset of athletes, for example, combat sports athletes, like, for example, if you follow the UFC, for a long time there was a discussion about testosterone levels. Obviously, the body produces testosterone, so knowing the usual amount of testosterone, then measuring how much testosterone is present in a sample, would give you an idea if the athlete tried to break the rules and get an edge over his or her competition. Finally, the third and last goal I can think of is, when you have a mixture of something you have no clue about, you want to find out what is in it. The difference to point number one is that in the first case, you know there's a chance that a substance can be inside the sample, and you just test for it. In this case, you may not really have a clue, and you may isolate or purify a substance you have not seen before. So in point number three, we need to determine first what it is. An example here could be to determine the cause of death, for example. Or if we want to go away from forensics or sports-related topics, it could be the effort to understand why a plant has beneficial effects on our health or is poisonous. That usually involves crushing the leaves and stem and whatnot, remove all the stuff we know like cellulose, etc., and then have a look, you know, isolate everything, just separate all the compounds out. 
that is what you do. You look for the unknown. So three different reasons for analytical chemistry, but the field of application is vast. There's forensics to help solve crimes, usually through DNA testing, blood tests, and material analysis. I think most people are familiar with that one because of all the television shows. And then there's environmental science that relies heavily on quantitative analyses, finding the levels of heavy metal contamination and or contamination from oil spills and urban runoff, for example. Related to forensics, but not exclusive to it, is bioanalysis, where we measure how much of a drug and its breakdown products, its metabolites, are found in biological systems. That can be pharmaceuticals in humans or animals, for example, but also insecticide levels found in the animals eating the insects. And the list goes on. Clinical analysis takes the idea of bioanalysis and puts it into the field of medicine for a benefit. And finally, two last examples that complement the above. Material analysis, which I've mentioned, and the analysis of compounds after making them for various industrial branches, such as pharmaceuticals. So you see a lot of different fields. Analytical chemistry is vast and it is awesome. I personally love it, mostly because I was never any good at it. But I loved puzzles. I actually still still do love puzzles. And that is what you do in this case. You get all the pieces of the puzzle and then you align it for a picture. But sometimes you only need one piece to know the image. And sometimes you need many pieces. And how to get them these pieces of the puzzle is what we will talk about today. A good start to this discussion are the qualitative analyses. These are tests you can run that determine the presence or absence of a specific substance. A great example are flame tests. You take a Bunsen burner, you know these gas-driven little metal rods you see in a chemistry lab that either have a small blue flame at the tip or a big candle-like yellow flame? So you take the, that Bunsen burner, set it to the blue hot flame, take a metal wire and dip it into a solution that you have and you want to know if there's a specific metal in this solution. You will know by the color of the flame. Sodium, for example, burns bright yellow. Lithium is a strong red color. And for example, chromium is silver white. I mentioned sodium at the right at the beginning because uh, remembering my chemistry days, it is quite common to have it accidentally in there. You only need a solution of saline with table salt in it and there you go. Bright yellow flame all the time. The other type of tests are chemical tests. And they're also very visual, as in you add your test to the mix and check if a visual change happens. There are a whole load of those tests, like seriously, a lot. i just give you one example here. There's something called the acid test for gold. Gold is a noble metal. The term was used to signify that it is below this metal to interact with its surroundings, much like the stuck-up nobility back in the day. Well, back in the day. I've never met nobility, so I don't know what they're like now. But yeah, so it's the same reason you call them noble metals as for the reason you call a noble gas a noble gas, by the way. They, they just don't react much. That's, that's the whole premise of it. A noble something just doesn't want to react with the, the common pleb, you know, 
the common elements. Now, the thing with gold is that it is very resistant to reaction with anything. That's why it's considered so precious, because it's, it's you know, it's just not going away. So if you take something that looks like gold and rub it against a rough surface like a black stone, uh, that will leave a mark. Add nitric acid to it and see if it dissolves. If it does, it's not gold. Or it is a, a impure form of gold. If it stays, you then use the one solution from back in the day that was known to dissolve gold. It's called aqua regia, or the king's water. It's a mixture of concentrated nitric acid and concentrated hydrochloric acid. Apply it. If that dissolves the mark, we have ourselves gold. Simple as this. Actually, you know what? I'll give you another quick one. If you want to know if starch is in a sample, you know starch from potatoes, for example, you add a solution of iodine to it. If it turns dark blue, there's starch in it. If not, no starch. Simple. This is a sort of premise for chemical tests. You add something and you want to see a color change. It's typically a color change or, or going like from, from a dark solution to clear, stuff like this. And it really, these are very simple tests to do. I, I linked a video for each test that I just talked about in the show notes. They're, they're actually quite nice and visual. Now, let's move on to the quantitative tests. You know, the ones where you check how much of something you have? These analyses come in handy, for example, when you want to know the level of heavy metal contamination in a sample of Earth. There are two ways of doing this that I'm aware of. One is rather straightforward. You weigh something. Um, it, it sounds really simple. And of course, you have to have a fancy name for it. Fancily, you call it a gravimetric analysis. Say you've, you've isolated the amount of calcium in water by, by precipitating it out of the water. You found a chemical way of doing that. You then collect your solid. You dry it as best you can, so get as much water out of it as you can. And then you wait. And that's how you know how much calcium would be in a certain set amount of, of sample. I don't know, a liter of water or something. So that one's straightforward. The second way is a way to measure the amount of a reagent in a solution. The principle is similar to the chemical test. You have a visual indicator that will change color or appearance in some form when you have reacted all of that reagent in a solution. To react this compound in solution, you use a known reactant that you know works with that reagent. In the process, you carefully measure how much you're adding. And once the so-called endpoint, the point at which all of the reagent is reacted away, is reached, you look at the amount of the second reactant you used. And that gives you what you need to know to calculate the weight of whatever it is you were looking for, or the, the amount. This process is called titration. And I, looking back on what I just said, admittedly, it most likely sounded a bit confusing. So let me give you an example. We know there is an accidental spillage of concentrated acid and you're not sure how much entered that water tank you have. 
Then you take a sample of that water, a set amount, into a beaker. And you then add an indicator called phenolphthalein. Try to say that quick and I'd be impressed. It, I, th I think it took me like, well, three years of my five-year degree to, to learn how to say these things correctly. Phenolphthalein. Uh, well, so once you add this, the water sample remains clear. That tells us that the solution is currently acidic. Now, acids react with bases. They neutralize each other. That's the whole two sides of the same coin sort of thing. Acids and bases react with each other. Uh, now, we add a base dissolved in water to the solution. At a very specific point, you will see the solution suddenly turn pink. This is the point at which all the acid was neutralized by the base that was added. You note the amount of base used, and we know how much acid was in there. And voila, that's how titrations work in a nutshell. It's interesting to watch it the first time, because if you get close to that endpoint, when you drop more base in, you see the, the basic water touching the, the sample. And they're like this little swirl of pink that you can see. And then once you swirl it a bit more, it disappears again. And that way you know you're getting close. Titrations are very exciting to do when you start out. And are very annoying to do once you've done it for about two years. Because the, the visual effect gets old after a while. But it's, it's a very nice and robust way of doing it. So... The last thing to say is titrations exist not only for acids and bases, okay, but for a whole range of different reagents as well that have a clear counter-reactant and a suitable visual indicator. There's, there's a whole, whole laundry list of things you can do. It's very versatile, but that is the concept. And admittedly, the above examples were all developed in a time before computers were around. But they are the basis of what we do in chemistry. And they are robust tests used to this day, developed by very good scientists. But there's also a section of analysis using specific instruments. And that, my friends, is where it can get really funky. Mainly these tests are done to identify what you have, but often with modern technology, you put a separation step and a quantification step before the identification. For this section, I would like to talk about two main technologies that I am familiar with. The first group of analytical methods to mention here is called spectroscopy. This is anything to do with the interaction of molecules with electromagnetic radiation. This field is seriously wide. In the wiki entry that I read, I counted 11 different types of spectroscopies, from infrared light over X-ray radiation all the way to magnetic fields. You, you have the whole range. The way it works is typically that the radiation makes the atoms or the chemical bonds move or vibrate or rotate. And this you can then measure and you can interpret it because... You measure it at different frequencies, for example. 
And depending on what frequency it is, you kind of know in what environment the, the chemical bond is or the, the atom is. And you can obtain an incredible amount of information from one technique alone. During my organic chemistry research days, we used at least one of them, nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy, on an everyday basis, and two or three others on a by-need basis. In the case of nuclear magnetic resonance, as the name already suggests, you place your sample in a very strong magnet in the environment. And that creates, a well, no, not a reaction. The, the molecules just align themselves along the magnetic field. And when you then hit pulses against it, it gives you a very specific signal. That's already quite in detail, actually. But NMR has replaced a lot of different analytical techniques and made life so much easier. NMR being nuclear magnetic resonance spectroscopy. Then there's something called mass spectrometry, which tells us the mass of the molecule we're looking at. Interestingly, when I was watching CSI episodes, I have noticed that they liked showing a mass spectrometry printout, which switches quickly to the conclusion. For example, you know that blinking box saying, this is latex, 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 latex. The way mass spectrometry works is a bit funky. You expose the material to really, really harsh conditions, and that way you, you charge it up so it's either positive or negative. And that way you put it into a magnetic field. Or, or something similar, but it's it's typically a magnetic field. When I say harsh conditions, I mean like electron bombardment harsh. There are actually a couple of different techniques. And you might think, if it is so harsh, will that not break the material? And the answer is yes. And that is the beauty of it. Each material has a tendency to break every time the same way, meaning that you see the same patterns. So say, for example, something has a mass of, I don't know, 100. And on exposure to, to this bombardment, letting it fly in the magnetic field, you see the 100, the peak. These are the molecules that flew through unharmed. Then you see a 70, a 65, a 35, and a 30. And that is a very specific pattern. And maybe you have a different molecule that also has a mass of 100. But there, the other fragments are 62, 50, and 48. And you see this breaking pattern even gives you even more individual proof, another puzzle piece. And that way, putting all these puzzle pieces together, this qualitative analysis, a quantitative analysis, these instrumental analyses, these different spectroscopies and the mass spectrometry, that gives you a fairly complete picture of what this molecule is, the properties, and that gives you then a good idea of what you have. Very often, if you already kind of know what you're looking for, mass spectrometry can often be enough to identify materials without any issue. Which brings me to my final point. To save time in this hectic world that we live in, Modern analytical machines often combine separation identification all in one. 
In the last episode, I talked about chromatography as a separation technique. It allows us to separate a mixture of compounds into its constituent parts. This can be done either in a liquid, as liquid chromatography, or as a gas in gas chromatography. And then adding a mass spectrometry inlet where the measured liquid comes out of chromatography machine allows you right away to identify the compound in the process. And as is usually the case, very innovative scientists are, I don't know why, but they're everything but innovative once it comes to names. And thus these machines are called exactly what they are like a liquid chromatography machine with a mass spectrometry machine after it is quite fittingly called LCMS for liquid chromatography mass spectrometry. And then I think you can already guess what GCMS stands for. Yep, that's gas chromatography mass spectrometry. And that is it, folks, for today at least my very short dive into the world of analytics. I literally just touched on each point a little bit. If you want to know any more details about any of the techniques described, please feel free to leave a comment. That gives me a good idea what you guys are interested in. Of course, as usual, this also counts for if you have any ideas for new topics. You can leave those thoughts and ideas on Twitter under at chemistryandeve1. You can leave it on my website or write directly to me under chem.podcast at gmail.com. If this was too fast to write down, I, I left the information in the show notes. Also, of course, if you liked what you listened to, please rate my show on the podcast platform of your choice. And with that, I say thanks a lot and uh, yeah, take care, folks. You've been listening to Chemistry in Everyday Life, a podcast about chemistry that happens all around us, explained in layman's terms. Thank you for listening.